0: Uh, one of the things as a community that we are doing, one of the questions that we're asking um, in light of some recent conversations is about faith formation and how faith is formed in the next generation. Beth mentioned just a moment ago um, her kids and, and trusting God um, that he's going to reign forever. And so as a community, one of the things we're starting to ask is, well, what are some of the ways that faith is formed in that next generation? What are some of the shape, the ways that God shapes um, faith in our, in our students here in this community. And so our goal is to come up with a plan, um, kind of a comprehensive plan from the time that a child is born in this community until they're like an emerging adult and making their own decisions about what things um, we can do, what things we can create, what environments we can uh, cultivate, um, what places we can go So that we as a community are shaping faith in that next generation. And so the way that we're doing that is kind of um, asking the question, well, what what has God done here? What has he done in the past? Um, What are ways that he has shaped your faith and your family's faith? Um, What are some of the experiences that your family has had? Uh, What are some of the experiences your children have had within this community that you know have made um, a dent? Uh, in their faith life, and so if you can be thinking about these two things, it's very possible. We've got a team of about ten people, uh, including the faith formation team, which includes um, Matt Weirs, and Elder, the children's ministry folk, myself, and Kyle Bleeker, uh, one of our interns here, um, as well as the other five interns that are serving. They're also a part of the interview team, and we'll be asking these questions. If you don't have time to sit down for 15 minutes and be interviewed, then I would invite you to send uh, your answers to these things um, in an email to either myself or Becca Treemstra, and that's just intout at therivercrc.com or Triemstra at therivercrc.com. All right, so be thinking about these. In what ways has God um, expressed himself, his love to your kids? Um, what are some of those formative experiences that they've had together? Um, I want to open in a word of prayer before we open God's word together. God, thank you that you have brought this group of people together on a journey, a journey toward your kingdom, a journey toward union with you, toward a communion with one another. Thank you that you brought us together so that we could... Uh, fill in each other's weak spots so that we could challenge each other and sharpen one another, uh, to encourage each other to be there, um, a a shoulder to cry on, um, a high five when we need one. Um, God, I thank you for those people uh, in my life, in this community, who have come alongside and um, catapulted me forward in in my faith. Lord, we pray for that next generation. Um, We pray that that your spirit would fall on them in, in fresh ways. We pray that Uh, You would use the wisdom of those who have come before us um, to guide us. Lord, we thank you for your words. Thank you for um, your text. And we pray that you would find us faithful this morning uh, as followers of yours. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series on the rules of the road looking at the Ten Commandments. And the Sixth Commandment is... Do not murder. And I think we're all convinced of that already. And so um, I'm going to just call it a morning and wrap it up right there. And initially, um, I wanted to title this message something like, The Journey is a Whole Lot Better When We Don't Kill Each Other. Um, But after looking at it, I want to make a little bit of a jump with your permission. We've been looking at the Exodus version of the Ten Commandments. I I believe actually Pastor Will uh, used the Deuteronomy text. And I want to make a leap ahead um, to Jesus and and his words on murder, with your permission. The most quoted book in Jesus' ministry is crickets. Anybody? In Jesus' ministry, I'm sorry, the, the most quoted book of the Old Testament that Jesus quotes. Anyone? Just throw out a book. I won't mock you. Isaiah, no. Good guess. What's that? Deuteronomy. Yeah, who said that? Oh, Nice, good job. Yeah, Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than any other book. Um, and he does this. He, he doesn't just leave the uh, Deuteronomy text and, and sort of invite people to make up their own interpretations of it. He brings and contextualizes it within his culture. And he does this in a really interesting way. Um, He uses the language, you've heard it said this, and now I tell you this. Anybody ever notice that in Matthew? I counted six times that he does this in, in this section from Matthew 5 to 7, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. He does it six times. He says, you've heard it said this, I tell you this. And the reason he can do that uh, is because within the Jewish context, there were a, a handful of rabbis who had special authority. Um, there's some weird word called smikah. And certain rabbis had this, authority to reinterpret texts in light of their current context. And Jesus was, was one of those who had been received by his culture as, as a, a rabbi with special authority. And so he reinterprets this text, in light of God's real intention, in light of sort of God's heart for his people. Jesus goes beyond the the rule, you shall not murder, don't kill anybody, and takes that to a whole new level. Now, it's interesting some of the parallels between Moses, who went up to a mountain, um, met with God, came down, gave instructions to his people about how to be in right relationship with God and each other. And Jesus, who's sitting on a mountain instructing his disciples about how to be in right relationship with God and each other. I love that parallel. And so with your permission, um, I'd like to read from Matthew 5 this morning. Those of you who um, have studied and know something about the text recognize Matthew 5 as the beginning of the Beatitudes um, or the Sermon on the Mount, um, and it's a, it's a really um, for a lot of Christians kind of captures the heart of Jesus' message, the heart of his teaching, and so we're going to start at verse 21. You have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, "Do not murder," and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. If you read this section in light of the previous ones, As a disciple, imagine yourself sitting there listening on the mountain. Uh, Behind you is the Sea of Galilee. I actually think it would probably be the other way. I think Jesus would probably be sitting lower, speaking up, because he was like an acoustical genius, and he recognized that sound is going to carry a lot better if he's down. But let's just say for the sake of the story that he's up. And he's preaching to you the Sermon on the Mount as he's talking about what it is to be blessed by God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking, and his words are like giving your soul life. If you've ever been in like a concert environment or somewhere where it was just like the words that the people were singing We're just giving you life. Everything about what they said just like connected with you in some um, mega way and you were just like drawn to what they were saying. And there was this amazing movement inside you of, of being like, yes. You wanted to shout like, yeah, what he's saying, that's what I want. That's where I'm at. And then while he's saying that and you're drawn to his words, Jesus on this mount. Describing what it's like to walk with God. Describing that God is for those who mourn. He's, he's for the persecuted. You see yourself in those words. And then he comes to this text. And he says, careful that you're not angry with one another. Beware of the division among you. And, and you look around at the crowd. And you look behind you. And you see the religious leaders. Um, You can recognize them very easily in a crowd because they're wearing like their funky garb. And they're kind of talking with one another about Jesus. And you can tell by the way that they're talking about him. They don't really appreciate what he's talking about. You remember your brother-in-law who just the year before had been cast out of, of your little village by those dudes because for years and years and years, he worked as like a stonemason and developed this weird hand disease. And so his skin began to get sort of dried out and, and flaky. And they said, unclean. And they cut him off from his family and his children, who now are, are your responsibility. And you see them, and this, this anger kind of boils in you, even as Jesus is speaking these beautiful words about what it means to walk with God. Something in you kind of boils. And then you you look a little bit farther and you recognize one of the guys from the marketplace. He's the one who sells you like baskets. And recently um, the price he was asking on his baskets seemed outrageous to you. He wanted 10 bucks for a basket that you know was worth three. So you offered him two, and he said, No way, five and you laughed, and then he spit in your face and said, "rakha," which is this Aramaic term of like expulsion, like I want nothing to do with you, and you left that place in disunity and disharmony, in a funk. And then there's the political situation. There's the the Roman centurion's who stand on guard making sure that the crowd that you're a part of, this, this movement that you feel like is going to change the world, they're there to make sure it doesn't actually change the world because it's the Romans who are in charge of doing that. They're, to make, they're there to make sure that your little movement doesn't get out of hand. And, and you remember just the previous day while you were walking home, you walked by them and one of them snarled at you and said something in Latin that you're pretty sure was dog, but you're not sure because your Latin is a little bit off. You knew it wasn't nice. And, and they're bad, but, but even worse than them is one of your cousins who went to work for them. Because um, he's like living on, on the hill now as you struggle to just scrape by. And he's, he's doing some stuff that you know is shady, but he's up on the hill and you're pretty sure he just got like the new donkey. Which comes with like a spoiler on the back or something. (laughs) And so he's rolling around town with a spoiler on his donkey, and you're wondering how you're going to make it. And he's doing that. And Jesus says, Careful, watch your heart. Careful you're not angry with your brother. Careful that that you don't say rakah. And be especially careful that you don't say, you fool. Now, I did a little digging as to what that idea of calling somebody a fool means. And if, if you remember in the Psalms what it says about the fool, it's the person who says in their heart that there is no God. And so when we point a finger at someone and say, you fool, it's as though we, we're writing them off as godless. We're writing them off as outside the grace of God that type of person we make the judgment has no place or union or potential for union with God. Jesus says, be careful when you go there. Be careful. Later in Matthew, he says that there is an unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is when we call what the Holy Spirit is doing an act of Beelzebub. When we call God's work the work of the devil, and this strikes me as being on the same chord, when we call somebody else a fool, when we write them off as being outside of the good grace of God. Um, I don't know if this is a challenge for you, but it is for me. How, how do we and how are we called as a Christian community to respond to threats? How do we respond to threats? I have this really technical graph um, on your notes. That's a circle, that little cycle there. And it's sort of like the playground cycle, which I just made up. I don't know if this happens beyond the playground. I'm guessing it does. It happens in my home. I witnessed it this week. Um, between my five-year-old and my three-year-old. Um, my five-year-old is a little bit smarter than my three-year-old and knows what buttons to push. She knows how to instigate Um, She knows how to get after the little one. And she'll do it um, in some really smart ways, but she'll do it. Uh, And I had the privilege of being in the room while it was happening and kind of listening, and I was, like, faking a nap. And um, the three-year-old generally responds in a couple ways when attacked. Lee and Brett can probably um, totally vouch for this. Uh, That the younger one will respond in a couple of ways. Uh, they'll play the victim card and like right off and scream for help from their parents. Uh, but if they recognize that the parents are too far away uh, or they're just sick of dealing with it, like they're not going to come to their aid, um, then they'll do something else, and they'll retaliate. So for the three-year-old, it, it looks like something like a roundhouse kick to the kneecap or something like that, uh, that she's attacking and, and responds back to the five-year-old. And then the five-year-old is actually in, in a spot where she can scream and call for help, choose to become a victim, or just do the same thing and retaliate. Um, This cycle perpetuates itself. The violence perpetuates more violence, perpetuates more violence, perpetuates more violence, and it goes on and on and on. And that's um, sort of what you see here in this graph. If you don't buy it, uh, you should really talk to um, any of the middle school counselors here. Is there any of them here, middle school counselors? We've got a couple at this church. Go talk to them and ask them how like, the sixth grade girls are doing this year. Ask them how the, how the sixth grade girls class is, is going this year and ask them if they ever see this. What happens is one person says something to somebody else that's sort of hurtful and harmful and divisive, something that carries, like Jesus would say, the murderous impulse. And that person in pain does this. Come here. Come here, I want to tell you what so-and-so said. Aren't they just the worst? And the murderous impulse gets sort of spread. It sort of trickles down. So now they've got numbers, these three. And at some point, uh, there's the strike, which is in your notes. Those three leak it and attack back. And this person, in turn, um, hurt and pain will often expand their plan, invite others into theirs. Now, suddenly, this one thing that was said blows up and becomes something far greater than what it ever was. This is kids. Thankfully, as adults, we don't do this. We don't play this game. We recognize and acknowledge our hurt When it's hurt, we recognize and acknowledge our anger when it's anger. We're way better. We're way beyond this, right? The good Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. um, said that when we respond with that murderous impulse, when, when we respond with darkness... We can never drive out darkness. Only the light can do that. Hatred doesn't drive out hatred. Only love can do that. In 2006, um, there was a man named Charles Carl Robert The fourth. And Charles Carl Robert IV walked into a schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. Um, he dismissed some of the older folks, the adults and the, the boys from the schoolhouse. And then he went on a rampage. Um, he took the lives of five young ladies in between the age of six and 13. He injured 10 people. And, and coroners who were working the case at various times had to leave the scene because of the the horror of it, because of the way in which he had done this this hateful thing. And almost immediately the media got a hold of the story and it went out and most of us probably remember it. And we remember just thinking, how could anybody ever do something like this? How could this kind of evil exist in the world? How could something like this happen? in the United States. Even more telling of of this story and, and what actually became the way bigger story was the response of the Pennsylvania Amish community to Charles Carl Roberts' act. An hour after it happened, grandparents and parents made media announcements and said things like we don't hold this against him we're choosing forgiveness they they made statements about their sense of loss for his family and said things like Charles Carl Robert has to stand before God with what he's done. And we want to do the same thing with our response. They they went way beyond that. They invited Marie Roberts, Charles' wife, to the funerals of their children. 30 of them went to his funeral as a sign of solidarity with her. Her quote following their acts was that your compassion to the Amish community has reached beyond our family, it's reached beyond our community. Your compassion is changing our world. The school, um, where the act had happened in, was torn down. And a new one, a block away, was raised up. And that school was called the New Hope Academy. And there's not a doubt in my mind that since that time and for the next however many years that school is around, when students walk through those doorways, they're going to be reminded of of what happened. But the far greater story is going to be the forgiveness, the burying of the anger, by her community, by the, the Amish community. Um, I asked myself this question, reading this story again. Is this what God asks of us? The Amish community took a ton of heat from people that said, hey, you need to get yours. You need to get, you need to get back. There needs to be some payment for what happened. There's got to be justice. And in your personal um, application questions at the end of your notes, I would encourage you to ask that question around the dinner table today. What place does justice have in this? And people ask that. They said, how can you not want to just get get back at him? Make his family, make somebody pay for what happened to your kids and your grandkids and your cousins. How can you not want to get back at them? And when I read this story, I, I see myself in this. Because the Scripture says that while I was still an enemy of God, Jesus died for me. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While, while we were still offensive to God, not walking in union with Him, not walking in right relationship with Him, He comes and seeks us out. Ephesians 2.13 says, In Christ Jesus... You and I, those of us who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Prior to Jesus' birth, the angels show up on the scene screaming. And I can't think of anything more terrifying than like thousands or however many angels there were that showed up like singing and screaming glory to god agree and peace on earth they're screaming peace one of the misconceptions i think that we have about peace in our culture because of like the 60s and stuff was is that peace is like this this weak way out that when we choose reconciliation when we choose trying to make things right with our brothers and our sisters that's somehow weak that somehow represents a way that's, that's sort of passive. And i found the exact opposite to be true. I found in those moments where God is calling me to reconcile a relationship with somebody else, I'm the most afraid. Somebody's checking Syrian, see if she agrees with that. I find that those are the moments where, where I'm most nervous. What if this person rejects me? What if they look at me and say, you're just dead wrong? What if I go, to the get, I go to them after laying down my offering? By the way, I'm not so sure as a church that's like our motto, that you should not put the offering. I would say put, first put the offering in, then pass it, and then go do your thing. But what, what if while we're doing that, we go to them, they go to other people And say, Can you believe this is what so and so did? I found in my life those are the most challenging moments. Peace is actually offensive. Reconciliation, that difficult thing of seeking right relationship with others, is incredibly challenging. It takes creativity, some some significantly deep thought. I wouldn't say just go blindly into scenarios and seeking reconciliation. Rather, consider how you might humanize that person and humanize yourself in their eyes. Jesus taught his disciples, if your enemy says to you to take their pack a mile, you should take it too. What's the purpose of that? I think what Jesus was getting after is the only way you can instruct and order somebody to do something like that if it, is if you've removed the image of God from them. You're no longer treating them as, as humans, as on par with yourself, as a, as a child of God in need of his grace and his mercy and his love. You've somehow removed that image from them and see them as something less than humans. So Jesus says, do something that will wake them up. Instead of going a mile, go two. And that whole second mile they'll be wondering what you're up to. They'll have to consider the fact that you too are a child of God. If they strike you on the right cheek, turn to them the left as well. And in your turning, maybe you'll like catch eyes. And they'll be forced to consider the fact that you too are a child of God's. That you too bear the image of the Creator. Peace, reconciliation is an offensive task. It's not a weak one. It's one that requires great creativity and great boldness. Uh, sometimes, it's scary because we've tried it before with this person. We've sought reconciliation, and there's nothing. Anybody have any relationships like that where you've sought reconciliation, you've sought peace, you've sought to make things right. And there was nothing. And again, I'm reminded of God's words. Um, I'm inviting you to partake in this ministry of reconciliation, Second Corinthians five, the ministry of reconciliation that I started, not just with people but with the entire creation. God invites us to participate in this ministry. So, I think his way of doing it is kind of patient. I think he's one who doesn't give up on people or relationships. And the challenge for me is to do the same. The challenge for me this morning, I believe the challenge from the text itself, is that we don't give up, that we don't utter in our hearts, you fool. We don't, in our hearts, utter, Rakha, I want no part of you any longer. Now, to be fair, I do believe there is a time and a place where we need to remove ourselves from a relationship, pray for reconciliation, pursue it. Forgiveness is a one-way street. We choose to forgive somebody. Reconciliation happens when the other party acknowledges the wrongdoing. So this isn't just a call to be sort of empty forgivers. It's not just to sort of forget wrongdoing and and forget what's happened against us. It's not a call to that at all. This is a call to something far greater. Desmond Tutu um, is the archbishop in South Africa. He was head of something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission following apartheid in 1994. After 35 years of white suppression, apartheid, in South Africa, Five million white South Africans oppressed over 30 million black South Africans. They did it in ways that were violent. They did it in ways um, that were oppressive and and wrong. And Desmond Tutu and the Truth Commission held a series of hearings, 21,000 hearings, where people could come to court and testify to their wrongdoing or how they had been wronged. They weren't turning away from their past. They were acknowledging it. And so people came and shared stories of theft, of murder, of rape at the hands of the white police, at the hands of, of those in control at the time. And it brought back all sorts of pain. It brought back all sorts of of awful, awful stuff. And some people that were observing said, this can't be the way forward. This can't be what's right here. Desmond Tutu said, whoever comes and confesses their action, the South African government is prepared to offer them amnesty. And people said, that can't be just. All they have to do is confess their sin and they they get a new start. That can't be the way forward. That was 1994. Um, This week, if you've watched any of the news, you know that Nelson Mandela um, has been battling uh, an illness. And Nelson Mandela in 1994 became the first black president of South Africa. Tutu said this, By the way, it is, I acknowledge, kind of difficult to take advice from a guy named Tutu. But he said this Forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies or our loved ones are not about pretending that things are other than they are. It is not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, and the truth. It could even sometimes make things worse. It is a risky undertaking, but in the end it is worthwhile because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Superficial reconciliation can bring only superficial healing. Next week, as a church community, we celebrate communion We celebrate that God in himself aimed his anger and his wrath at Christ. We celebrate that Jesus' body was hung on a cross, that God said, in Christ I'm making peace with the entire creation, which includes you. In Christ I'm inviting you into communion and union with me In Christ, we're no longer enemies, we're friends. And he invites us to look each other in the eye and say whatever grievances you have against one another in Christ Jesus, may they be forgiven. If you're at the altar and there you remember your brother, your sister's, your own offense, Put down your offering and go make it right. That's God's invitation for us as a community this morning and as we prepare for the Lord's Supper next week. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you that you are rich in mercy. Thank you that you are slow to anger and that you are abounding in love. God, thank you for stories of reconciliation like those in South Africa. Thank you for witnesses like the Pennsylvania Amish who, who give us as disciples of yours um, an image and a picture of what it means to live your words out. God, we pray for courage. We pray for continued wisdom. We pray that you would show us your ways, that we might be in union with you. In Jesus' name, amen.